BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to your handbook for the apocalypse. This is Mystic Mark with an unconventional pre-show intro. I just want to clarify, there are three portions of today's episode that mysteriously got cut out. And I promise you, this is not scripted because uh, you might be questioning when you really listen to what we talked about today. But yeah, there was three portions of today's conversation about two minutes long where it was just straight static on the recording. And I was very upset. I had to spend a whole extra day trying to figure out how to fix it luckily i saved most of the conversation and mike and i are trying to figure out what exactly happened there but yeah if you notice the conversation jump at any point just uh know that that is what happened and either way enjoy the conversation folks we plan on releasing this once a week on thursdays uh most likely thursday mornings So you AM podcast listeners can get the early bird special. All right. Enjoy this episode, folks. Peace.
Hey, Mike, how are you? Hey, what's up, man? How are you? Excellent. Just another uh, sunny day over here now. <laughs> <laughs> it's starting to turn into fall, and I'm very excited for that. But uh, we're, we're, we're talking right now. What is today? Today is the 29th? Yes, sir. I think it's the 29th. So, so word on the chatterboard. And so we take the chatterboards with a with a with a um, a big a big um, a big caveat because you know anything can be said by anybody for any purposes. But that being said, sometimes you hear some pretty good stuff. Uh, the word on the street is the um, at least here in America, uh, the gloves are going to start to come off in October. Mm. In terms of like. Um, the levels of mandates and other um, institutions which are um, which can make life more difficult for people. So I don't know if that's going to happen, you know, because that's what I meant, like you know, with a big caveat. But I'm also um, I'm also paying attention to that. You know, we're uh, we, we're all trying to get our houses in order in the best we can. I would I would recommend for for us. Yeah, I've heard here and there people saying like, oh, yeah, there's no toilet paper on the shelf. Probably, well, let, let's stay here for a moment. Probably, um, you know, I don't know how much you're following what's going on in Australia. Slightly. Slightly. Well, um, at least at least seemingly like all of the. The, the 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 unofficial news sources and there's a there's a ton of them which is coming out of Australia like um, it's getting really ugly over there on many many different ways both in terms of, of um, violence towards the population and then also just like really really strict mandates and and all of our brothers and sisters and friends up in Canada like uh, I don't think it's quite that bad yet but we're seeing that happen as well. And so I'm not necessarily suggesting um, that that's going to happen in the United States. In fact, I would imagine what will happen here in the United States would probably be different. But the point is um, uh, a lot of, like, worst-case scenario fears of, like, what people have been <laughs> uh, talking about for at least 50, 60 years, um, it's beginning to show itself. It's seemingly so. So uh, what I what, what what may be coming, what I probably think it's going to be, is like more so about hassles with um, with uh, purchasing, being able to use like Visa cards and stuff like that, and all debit cards use a back end Visa system. Um, like things like that are going to start getting tweaked. Like you know, if you can't, if you don't have a certain a certain proof of, of certain things, well then, um, you know, you're going to be locked out. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole social credit system. I mean, you know, looking at apartments over the past few months, one option that came up frequently was Airbnbs and the extended stays that the Airbnbs offer people. And in my mind, in the back of my mind, you know, in this paranoid skeptical side, I've been thinking, you know, well, isn't that convenient that they're pushing housing onto an app like this? And if this becomes standardized, I mean, it's as simple as somebody writing a bad review like, oh, this person's, uh, you know, doesn't mow their lawn. And then you get enough, you know, social credit negative points accrued. And then, you, you know, you go to move into a new place and they say, oh, well, you have all these, you know, 
negative reviews from your last home. You didn't mow the lawn and such. And it's like, do, are, are there no second chances anymore? We're just going to walk around with a, a receipt for every mistake we've ever made hanging from our chin. You know, that that's kind of what it feels like we're getting pushed into. But all the news, Mike, you're going to come to learn this about me if you haven't already. Definitely from doing this show is, I'll probably be the last person to find out that the the world is ending if there is an apocalypse. So that's why I'm really grateful to do this show with you because uh, I don't watch the news. And, and when I do hear stuff, I try to be as biased as I can towards the positive. And that might sound a little ungrounded, but it's just like it's just what I need to cope. And that might sound like a fragile state of mind, but I think having the discipline to keep that media out of your mental sphere takes strength and uh and it's something that yeah uh on the one hand no i don't have as much to comment as someone else who is keeping up with the news but at the same time i think that leaves space for me to entertain other things like this uh ley line i've been investigating well let me let me go let me go and respond to what you say before we get into the ley line sure um first off like that is one of the healthiest things which a person can do is is to um, avoid avoid you know the negative psychological impacts of particularly the mainstream news and even alternative news for some of that matter solution like the the way they're setting it up the way it's been set up and it's been so friggin' clear from the very beginning I mean from the very beginning the internet you know it was called the net and the web. Because it's meant to catch you. It's meant to catch everyone. And so how it catches everyone is it changes their point of reference for reality, thinking that all things need to go through that medium. And that medium, everything that goes over, you know, the internet is going to be, you know, within the realms of that, of that, uh, of being able to be caught, if you will. So being able to live your life with as little to no connection through that and all of the other sort of digital type of, of, of platforms and, 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 and other things, um, you're, you're not going to be caught. But the one thing and the reason I bring this up and, and so so it's gonna be interesting is that we're gonna see if like anything happens or not. You know, maybe nothing happens because that's been, definitely been part of the game plan. You know, that's the part of the psychological operation. What they'll do, uh, if you're a prisoner of war, one of the ways which they break you is on a regular basis, they pull you out of your cell, line you up in front of a firing squad, you know, ready aim, and then they either shoot blanks or or they put the gun down but it's to bring you through this emotional process of like oh my god oh my god oh my god and then release and something happens so like that could be going on right now so i'm just saying to if it doesn't happen now though i think it's eventually going to happen like being locked not just social credit scores locked out of systems and so the new systems uh uh being able to to live your life outside of that system is going to be uh, it's literally the way for surviving it because you're not part of it the one last thing I want to say before we go back uh, uh, is, is this, like going back to the history of what is the Internet, the Internet as we know it. And what I mean by that is like both the, the, um, the, the hardware infrastructure that allows us to have all of this sort of like um, 
the stuff which we do with the internet, and then also uh, more of the software, it was birthed by two entities. The first one is the Pentagon, and then the second one is CERN. CERN came up with the entire World Wide Web, making like this, this like binary, uh, uh, like really, really kind of like programming language um, infrastructure of the internet from, um, you know, from when its inception in the late 60s, which all is Pentagon. In I think it was in the late 80s is when a scientist from CERN invented the whole, like we can put like graphical based um uh, we can have a graphics-based interaction as opposed to someone having to be able to like write in code to, to utilize the internet. And so the point I'm trying to make is it's always come from those institutions. That is the foundation of this entire web, of this entire net. And so depending upon how you see those institutions, you know, it's that, that should give a good indication of where all of this grew from. Yeah, and you're bringing to mind uh, portals, when you mentioned CERN and all of their strange occult symbolism that I'm sure people have heard of many, many times, I certainly heard it on a bunch of different podcasts, but, you know, more local to our area and our story, what you've been investigating for the past however many years, the Hamanasset ley line. And I don't mean to, you know, just abrupt and jump in and, and cut, but I think it all connects because part of why I've even pursued this was you know because of podcasting because of listening to all these shows and being inspired by folks like yourself Mike and a year ago I think I might have talked about this but a year ago I randomly found Hunter Mountain just randomly on my journeys searching for really nothing just kind of going out and, and seeing what's out there and I found Hunter Mountain I took a picture of it, thought that's interesting, didn't really think much more than that, and then drove back to Connecticut. It was like maybe two hours away from where I lived. So I took a little day trip, long story short, exactly a year and a month ago. And then on episode 54 of my podcast, my girlfriend Tara and I were interviewing a woman named Aurora, who is a galactic walk-in, right? And she mentions that... This area in New York that I had gone to, Hunter Mountain, Woodstock, that area, is a portal or a vortex. So I'm like, wow, okay. That's interesting. I, I remember being there. So naturally, Tara and I got more curious, and then we planned a little day trip out there, and we drove to Woodstock. So we drove around. We stopped. We went to this bookstore. And when I was in the bookstore, a book called Spirit in the Stone called out to me and it was the only copy they had and it was probably the only book in existence with information on this ley line called the ham and asset line uh, you could look that up there's two m's two s's uh, i'll spell it in the episode description but if you look it up the only person who's ever written about the ham and asset line is this author and then graham hancock who wrote the foreword to this book so right off the bat, I'm like, wow, okay, a ley line going through Connecticut, starting uh, at Montauk Point, which connects to the Philadelphia Experiment, connects to MKUltra, all these things, and it goes through Connecticut straight up to the Great Lakes. So that being said, 
Tara and I, very curious, have been investigating this ley line and mapping it out. Well, we finally stepped into the real world after plotting the, the line as best as we could. And we went to the border of Connecticut and New York where the ley line intersects the border because something I think is important when it comes to looking at this kind of stuff are borders, you know, places where two states or two countries interact. There's usually significant reasons why the border's there. All sorts of things can be found. I think borders are just naturally a transition point. And in those transition points, we find strange things. So we find this town called Amenia, Amenia. It was named by the same guy who named the state of Vermont. Again, borders, the border for the, for the state of Vermont on the eastern side is the Connecticut River. Uh, so anyways, we're, we're exploring this ley line and we find that this waterfall, Kent Falls, literally is on the line. The water flows in the same direction northward as the line. So that being said, we felt the energy. It was interesting. That day, I had a thought to look a little further along the line and see what's in New York. Well, I find out that the Hammonasset Ley Line crosses through the Susquehanna River in a town called Milford, New York. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Mar uh, Mike, but... I'm from a town called Milford, Connecticut. So so now I'm looking into this Hammonasset line. It crosses the Susquehanna River, which has been so significant from the beginning for fueling this whole inquiry. And I find that the Susquehanna River and the Hammonasset ley line intersect in a town that has the same name as the town I was born in. So that's all I have right now. There's little details here and there in between. But what are your thoughts on that? So the first question I have is um, the author of this book, like what do they say is the significance of this ley line? So it's interesting. Glenn, Glenn Kreisberg is the author, and his book is not specifically just about the ley line. It's, all, it's about megalithic northeastern America. So the northeast according to this author, is kind of forgotten about when it comes to ancient cultures and megalithic structures. People assume that, you know, it's only Cahokia and the Serpent Mound. So his assertion is that, no, the Northeast has just as many, if not more, stone alignments. So he connects the Hammonasset Ley Line to the Draco constellation. And okay. he, he, he plots it from Montauk Point, which people might know Fort Hero, where the MKUltra experiments took place. That is an indigenous burial ground. You and I know how important burial grounds are. And, you know, Ross Ben's work is all about this demagnetizing the grid and how the mound, the necromancers, the geo-necromancers, you know, demagnetize sacred spots by burying their dead there and then, you know, build buildings on top of sacred places where the indigenous where, people buried their dead. Where is the the other endpoint? The other endpoint. Now this is even stranger. So 
I talked about this on my show with a guy named Brad Olson. He's an author of a bunch of different books, Modern Esoteric, which is one of his most famous books. So we talked about how there are all these copper deposits in the Great Lakes that are, you know, have history into mm -hmm. maybe possibly the Phoenicians were using Certainly. these. So this Hamanasset ley line goes all the way up to a place called Kinesaw in Wisconsin. It's like that one little finger that sticks up off of Wisconsin into the Lake Superior, and it's called okay. it's called Copper Harbor because of the copper there. And it passes over an island called the Manato Island. Manato is an indigenous word meaning, you know, spirit. And in Woodstock, New York, and this is the connection that Glenn makes in his book, that it's funny how Manato Island is connected to this line. And in New York, Woodstock, New York, there's a wall called the Manitow Wall. And it's this huge stretch of mountains that jut up on the western side of the Hudson River near Woodstock, creating the Catskill Mountains. You know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the tribes in this area would use this mountain for their rites of passage. They talked about how it had 12 levels, 12 houses to heaven, and only the, you know, purest of heart and the bravest warrior could make it to the 12th peak, the highest peak. So this ley line has spiritual significance going back to the, you know, original cultures that were here. Uh, but, you know, Glenn only writes about it in one chapter, and then he moves on to the correlation between the Overlook Mountain in the Catskill Mountains and the um, Serpent Mounds and how both have stone alignments that map out the Draco constellation. So, and then he moves on to discuss other spots um, throughout the world and connecting them to the Northeast. But he really only mentions the Hammonasset line in two chapters, the third chapter being the one uh, that has the most information. So now here I am. I'm like, wow. You know, I th I'm thinking all of these, everybody's already figured it out. There's nothing new. But in my own backyard, there's the Hammonasset ley line that has only really one chapter written about it and no articles. There's a, a, a gentleman who knows the author who lives in Connecticut, who kind of brought this to the author's attention. But other than these two guys, I seem to be the third person really interested in it who, uh, right. you know, has, or might have the opportunity to do any writing about it. So, so first off the whole idea that it's all been discovered and all figured out, like, you know, just crumple that up. Like that's, there's no, right. that's, there's nothing <laughs> further to from the truth about it. Well, like, I mean, there is a period though where we learn from other people and it brings us and that can give us clues on our own sort of like, um, journey. And particularly if you're a researcher, you know, so, so keep that in mind. Um, uh, a couple things which are well first this question have you read the Gaia matrix no is that is that okay. by david ike no no this is by I, I don't know the guy's name it's french sounding it's peter french sounding and so <laughs> I, i'm not going to try to go and um and and butcher that name but i know i've spoken i've spoken about it ad nauseum in past videos and i thought that maybe you and i had talked about it but the entire book is about all of the ley lines in new york uh, uh new england and all of that stuff and he does an exquisite job laying it out it's got a certain perspective of it and it's really interesting to read because i think it was written probably in the mid 90s 
It was definitely written before 19, or 2001, before 9-11. And so uh, there's, a different, there's a different flavor there. Uh, and, it, and to me, at least, it becomes clear, <laughs> you know, to see how, like, you know, general consciousness has changed from that event. But nonetheless, it is so friggin' highly recommended. And to put in context, I don't uh, – with what you're talking about. So, um, so there's that. And I'll get you that information. Gaia Matrix is what it's called. It's got maps. It's got all sorts of great stuff. It has um, a lot of really key points happening right around the Finger Lakes, um, the Finger Lake region of New York. The second thing I want to point out is Milford, New York is probably eight miles due south of Cooperstown, right. which is the source of the Susquehanna. So it doesn't necessarily just cross the Susquehanna at Milford. It crosses the Susquehanna at the very least within the first 10 miles of its beginning. But like you could even just be less, less specific and say like it crosses – at the source location. And so I would say that's a, that's through, a pretty big. Through the Susquehanna State Forest, New York Susquehanna, the Susquehanna State, State, Forest. State Forest. So then the next thing, though, I want to bring up, and this is a general question, which I'm going to pose to you. It's like, so what's the importance of ley lines? Why does it matter? Like well, why, why is this a significant to you? You know, like, what do you think, what do you think ley lines are and why should we care? Right. So maybe five months ago, I wouldn't have had as good of an answer or as a confident answer as I do now. But since visiting Wissahickon Creek with Ross Ben and feeling the energy of the mound that he took us to, it's palatable for me. It's more tangible for me. You know, like now that I have his sort of discernment to be like, yeah, this is a mound to me. Now I have a better gauge on my compass that might have indicated that energy to me but i wouldn't have been able to place it as well as i can now now you know not saying that ross is the end all be all or the mound expert but he's certainly done a lot of work and and i trust his opinion i listen when he talks (laughs) definitely right so so since then i think you know that was a really big moment you know it clarified that feeling for me and and kind of um reinforced that i was looking in the right direction uh, I would say ley lines, I think on an energetic level, you know, draw people to them, uh, hence why there are structures, you know, built on them. And that's kind of where Glenn came to it with the stone alignments. My thought is it must be a a, a, a route for people to travel because it crosses through, you know, at least 60 bodies of water from rivers to lakes to ponds, reservoirs. Obviously, some of those are man-made now, but that was another thing I noticed with the ley line is it's just packed with water. So if someone were to travel from the Great Lakes to Long Island Sound, which are two um, you know amazing places, really, I'm sure before the colonists got here, extremely abundant, you know. So that being said, I think on a historical level, it's some sort of um, way for people to organize their migration because it's, it's celestial, it's, it's aligned with the stars. We know people use the stars to at least uh, understand their place, uh, if not completely navigate. But I think in conjunction with the stars, they were able to use a path like the Hamanasset line to travel because you know, every so many days they would find another stone alignment confirming they're on the right track. They would come to the Catskill Mountains, see over the Hudson River, and know they were you know close to Long Island Sound. 
So not that I've made any tricks like that and have any, you know, understanding of what that would take. But I think from my, uh, from my perspective, it's extremely thought provoking and it's drawing my curiosity more and more every day. So that's why I feel like it's powerful, just the curiosity and also Bard College and Colgate College are both built along the Hammond Asset line. Not sure what the significance are to those colleges, but I know Colgate is definitely named after an important guy, maybe pertaining to the whole fluoride thing. Also, Plum Island crosses the Hammond-Nasset line, you know, very particularly important to what we're dealing with today, all the experiments they did on Plum Island. And then next to the Susquehanna State Forest, there's a mountain called Mount Vision, which is like, all right. Here I am on my vision quest, and I find Mount Vision in Milford, New York, in the Susquehanna State Forest. Hmm. Those are some really interesting ideas and thoughts. Um, and undoubtedly, I think that, uh, like, ley lines um, play a part in terms of navigating travel, I would say. Like, when... and. I would say, yeah, there's there may be stone markers, but maybe, you know, at another time, or maybe even happening right now, but just in a different frequency, uh, just as you described how palpable you felt the energy at Wissahickon Creek, like it would be that obvious where these ley lines are. In fact, I would even suggest that before the compartmentalization of our five outer senses, you know, by labeling them and thinking of them as five different senses. Uh, that's a compartmentalization process. There's a, a, you know, not to go down too far of a tangent, but I'm going to circle back. Um, the, the idea of synthanasia and synthanasia is when um, the, the, the rarity, and I say that with air quotation marks around it, that when a person's different senses blend together, they, they smell colors, they hear, they hear, I don't know. They keep, uh, I was going to say they hear sounds, but that's obvious. But like, that's an indication of no. Once all these senses were together, and we were probably the sum total of all of these senses, gave us a completely different experience of reality. And so, it is probably from that, like we were able to, or, or, or human beings were able to, pick up these these uh, ley lines um, in a very very tangible sort of way. Um, you know, that, that seemingly makes, that's a logical conclusion to me. But I think that's also just a, um, a simplification of maybe what the human experience may have been like in a different sort of environment on Earth. And I don't think that ley lines necessarily just point to navigation for those reasons. And like, you know, maybe all sorts of things uh, navigating uh, related to that sort of stuff. Um, I'm going to go back to where we began. You know, I gave a little uh, a little soliloquy on the internet and you know where it came from and who it came from. So, part of what we need to do during this time period, you know, I, I call it rewilding consciousness, is is this ability to look at things from a different perspective and a different. Um, and outside of the, the conditioning in terms of how we've been 
uh, uh, taught to, to interpret reality. So um, all that being said, like it goes both ways. You can look at stuff within the false reality and you can reverse engineer uh, something else. So if we go and we look at the internet as a concept, you know, this, this uh, um, web of, of, you know, on the most basic level, uh, level uh, uh, permanent fiber optic connections between different points, which are able to then from these different nodal points connect all throughout Earth. Um, that's not a new friggin' idea. Like there is, there, there is nothing in the false reality which is new. All the false reality can do, like by definition, a false reality cannot create. Um, but what a false reality can do is like either replicate or invert, which is, you know, a type of replication. So we go and we look at the Internet and we can go and, and, and ascertain that what the Internet is, this interconnection of uh, what it's primarily used for is information sharing and receiving, like that exists. And on one level, we can look at the, um, and on a very material level, we can look at both like the, the, uh, the interconnection of all of the, the mushroom root systems within a forested area, like how that is so interconnected to share information. And then also throughout the entire wooded ecosystem, like just how it shares information. Like we can see that we're like, Oh, that's kind of like the internet. Like that's a, that's a pretty easy sort of comparison, but I'm going to say like, no, that's just like one of the many like fractal fractal replications of something maybe a little bit more foundational and what that foundational system what that foundational uh connection of web of of energy of light because that's what the internet is the internet is just show, you know over fiber optic lines it is replicating artificial light and what we're actually seeing another version of the internet here on earth on a different level of experience is what we're calling the collection of ley lines. And so I can't say this from actual experience right now, this is just conceptual for me, but as we, as we need to move off of the internet, like part of, part of like the, part of the, the, the trickery of, of the false reality is making you think that this is the only way which you go and experience life. Like as you get kicked off the internet, as they try to bribe you to stay on to using that, uh, you need to have something else to step into. And that's part of the mm. fear. It's like, Oh God, this is the only thing. Well, I'm introducing the idea that this is what the ley lines are. And so everything which we can do with the internet and, and uh, we should be able to do in a natural way. What I'm going to say, that means is is being able to access information and store information now it's not going to be as refined as the internet because that's what we see in the false reality it takes something which is naturally occurring and then it refines it until it's weaponized like you know we can look at like a lot of like drugs that way of like you know how they've been refined and refined into cocaine and now it's like kind of weaponized against you but there is a foundational truth there i don't necessarily think that our experience with a naturally occurring ley line internet, if you will, or the internet is actually like, you know, an inversion of the ley line network. But at some point out of necessity, we are going to discover 
that every, like all of the benefits, all of the ways in which we connect with people, we know where to go, we share information, and we access it has to do with this, this, this ley line network. And I'm going to say it also corresponds, as you said, or like interacts with like more natural, like water or more material, like water networks. And they don't necessarily line up exactly, but there are significance. And so as and this would be my my encouragement to you like you know you are on this vision quest right now you are like you know you are probably in one of like the main uh interchange areas in internet speak they call them metropolitan uh area exchanges and like these main places where all of these networks uh intersect that's what i understand or that's the way i see the northeast is that's why it is so significant and so part of like part of your journey like as you're learning and experiencing it from all of these other ways like uh Start start being open to these ideas and, and, and looking for, like, what are the potentialities in a very, very material way in which this information or this understanding, this other way of looking at our reality, like, how does it really serve me? in my life, in my body, at this particular time where I can go and really create or be part of the creation of um, – uh, another reality on earth. So that's kind of my thought on the issue. Wow. Yeah. I, I love the connection between the ley line network and the network that we're all connected to, even the phone network that you and I are talking to each other. I mean, it's all the same. Yeah. All and, the friggin' same. Well, it, it's funny cause it brings up these notes. I kind of have about the teachings of Don Juan, a Yaki way written by Carlos Castaneda, you know, I'm, person that came up in the podcast that I asked the listeners to check out in between this episode and last week's episode. You said you checked it out. I'm happy you did. Thank you. Um, let's go right into this because I'm because this we're, we're we're flowing. So so run with it. Run with like let's go down into the podcast and like the the information which corresponds to to Castaneda. Well, first of all, for the listeners, thank you if you did go and listen to that podcast because Mike and I, Uncle Mike and I, are hoping to create really a, a podcast here that interacts with you in your real reality and maybe even anchoring you into a more real reality through listening to this. I don't know. Just my thoughts. Not something that me and Mike huddled about, but either way, something that really profoundly affected my life was Carlos Castaneda's work, his books, you know, obviously being born in 1994 was after his death. And, you know, all I could really interact with were his books and maybe p other people who have also read his work. And it's interesting. There's many books written about his books. And one of them is by this guy, Victor Sanchez. And I love his book because it really breaks down the whole Carlos Castaneda series in a sort of uh, technical, practical, step-by-step -step way. And What's the name of the book you're, re you're referencing? It's called The Teachings of Don Carlos, Practical Applications of the Works of Carlos Castaneda by Victor Sanchez. Awesome. Okay. And he breaks down a concept that is mentioned and talked about a lot throughout the whole series. And that's the difference between the tonal and the Nagual. And I, I think this is really cool, this connection, because a lot of your work, Mike, 
connects to the Toltecs. And the Toltecs are, you know, really the inspiration for Don Juan's whole knowledge base. I mean, his culture connects to the Toltec culture. So this idea of the Tonal and the Nagual being Tonal being the normal, ordinary reality or the two bands of fields of energy, so to speak, they call them the eagle emanations, but you can understand it like a field of energy. And Don Juan says that there are only two bands available to us. There's the band of organic life, and then there's the band of inorganic structures, and then this third sort of non-ordinary reality, which is our soul and maybe even the higher parts of our mind. So I think the internet... in a way, is like taking the Nagual and anchoring it in the Tonal, like creating a sort of artificial matrix, something that we talk about a lot. Uh, but yeah, what are your thoughts on on that breakdown and those two concepts? Uh, I, I think it's a real, um, I think it's a, um, it's a big concept, and it's something which I've spent a lot of time on, and so it's a personal favorite one, but I'm going to focus more so on what you said the internet is, is kind of like this, this intermediary between these, these different, um, you know, different, different uh, frequencies or dimensions or whatever, or ways of being or whatever, however we want to go and describe that. And I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, And it becomes very clear when, uh, you know, I brought up before the connection, the historical connection about the Internet and CERN and, you know, just like what the hell are they even doing in CERN and what is that? You know, I'll go back. You know, my personal research is like this all began with like the John D. Enochian magic stuff. And I think that those are other words, you know, Enochian magic and thinking John D. But they're kind of describing the same thing as um, described in like the Toltec language, which you're talking about. Um, I think it's, uh, I think it's really, uh, I think it's a fascinating topic, but I only got too far off. I want to hear how you're going to go and link this back to the podcast, which we all listen to. Well, I wanted to create, I wanted to create a little bit of a connection point because I think the perspective of the podcast is a little more focused on the story between Christina, this actress, and the director, Federico Fellini. Um, But they use Carlos Castaneda as a sort of, you know, known figure. So I just wanted to clarify that. Right. You know, even though Castaneda did, you know, become somewhat of a cult leader, a lot of the, the work that he did initially was inspired by this Toltec culture that, you know, describes so much of what we're talking about today. So I just want to make that connection. Go ahead. Well, yeah. So, okay. Walt, can you, you want to give like a a quick synopsis of the podcast and the book they're making reference to? Right. So get us all on the same page. Right. So they're talking about a character named Federico Fellini, who was a director in the 1970s, 60s, 80s, around this time. And in 1984, he became absolutely enamored with Carlos Castaneda's work, just like me. You know, when I was 17, 18, bought a bunch of his books, started reading them, and it really, like, colored my imagination. You know, this mystical desert came to mind. So, so, 
so hold on, let me interrupt you for just one one second, just to just to like kind of lay the, the the framework. So the podcast called Mysterious Universe, which yes. you're going to have like linked in this episode, also is about these two dudes who have a perspective. They have a very kind of like metaphysical perspective, but they're also, I've I've never heard them before. Uh, They're British guys and they're both like very metaphysical, um, but they're also skeptical. And they're they're analyzing a book. And the book they're analyzing, I think it's called- um, Towards the Moon with Fellini. Towards the Moon with Fellini. And so this is a nonfiction book telling the account of a certain experience which involved like the two primary characters were Fellini, who's a world renowned uh, 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 film director at the latter part of his life and career, uh, a woman who I was not familiar with. And then uh, one part of the story has to do with their interactions with Carlos Castaneda. Like this is like the book is written that this is all happening. This is not, this is not, fiction this these are actual events and so what what i think we're going to get into right now is not just the analysis of the book but more so the analysis of the people analyzing it and then like you know our own experiences with it so so uh with that said let me hand it back to you yes yes and i should point out that they're australian and they definitely australian they're australian and they definitely they definitely have a very i almost feel like it's mythbusters it it feels to me like the show mythbusters if you're familiar with uh jamie and adam there on that i've never seen it but i know what that show is and yes yes that it, it was uh, <laughs> I, I found their analysis rather like, you know, that in itself was, was, was noteworthy to me because there are certain things which they're like really, really suspect of. And then there are certain things that they just accepted without having any sort of like analysis. Yes. So I was like, wow, there's a, there's a real inconsistency there, but <laughs> nonetheless, I, I enjoyed the ride. Like, you know, we can, we or at least I try to like have an approach that I can learn from everyone, regardless if I agree with them or not. So, so like this is independent of whether I agree with their conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you as well. I think the, uh, the show, it, it's, it's funny. It's got its own taste, but I, I take from it, you know, a lot and it inspires me what they do with the book. So either way, yeah, that's I don't, the most important thing. Yeah. And so they're talking about this whole saga between Federico Fellini and this actress, but more importantly, they receive these phone calls, okay? Now, the phone calls... Which, which is the nature of where this act... What, what what Fellini and this actress, like, why they met each other, like, what they shared, like, the whole purpose is this web uh, from the these phone calls you're about to tell us about. Right, right. So, you know, like you pointed out, Mysterious Universe definitely looks at these books from a more skeptical perspective so the fact that these phone calls are coming in that's like the point of the podcast so folks hope you listened to that already if you didn't go listen to it now it's free and then you'll know a little bit better what mike and i are talking about so this voice starts calling fellini and christina and it it calls itself you as in y-o-u you and uh it has a sort of metallic voice and and this this is the days before cell phones. These are like old fashioned phones, right. like 
they're lit, they're, they lift up the phone and there's this strange voice and it's telling them stuff to do. Right. And they both and they find out later on that they both are receiving it from the they both are receiving similar calls. And um, again, remember, this is position. This is this is not a Hollywood story plot. This is what their experience was. Right. And, you know, the synchronicity seems to be the theme. But as the story progresses, it seems like the synchronicity is more manufactured than you initially think. So Fellini, like I said, enamored with Castaneda and he happened, you know, he's an Italian. So he was, he was near Rome and it happened that a friend who knew Castaneda calls him up and says, you know, Castaneda's in town. He wants to meet with you. He wants to talk to you. And Fellini's like, wow, that's amazing. How, you know, I, what, what, what are the odds, you know? So he jumps at the chance and I think they didn't end up meeting, but they did, sort of talk on the phone and make plans that they were going to do this movie. So Fellini makes plans to go to the United States. He ends up in the, in the United States in New York first. And that's when this woman, Christina receives a strange phone call from you, which tells her like, you have to go. There's going to be a director. This director is going to basically, you know, change your life and like, it'll be good. So, you know, she's sort of a new age type chick and she's got, you know, her head sort of in the same place, even though I don't think she's familiar with Castaneda, but you know, right off the bat, she meets Federico Fellini and they hit it off. You know, she's interested in the sort of metaphysical and he's very fascinated with this whole saga and Castaneda. So they meet up despite, you know, sort of the rest of the people in their group being like, okay, you two are weirdos, you know. And long story short, this voice starts leading them around, you know. It calls Fellini, it calls her. They end up down in Mexico. The voices call. The voices start asking them to sleep with certain people in the group, right? So a lot of strange things happen. But Carlos Castaneda and Federico Fellini, Cristina, they never end up getting together. There's nothing that happens. There's no movie. Nothing happens. It's sort of a letdown, it feels like. Um, And... You know, I wanted you to listen to this because this idea of synchronicity being manufactured seemed to be the theme. And uh, I think, you know, maybe that's the perspective added from the, you know, two hosts that are the mysterious universe. And maybe that's how they feel about it because they did kind of make a comment on the harmonic convergence that seemed like, you know, it was like, oh, Christina, Christina heard about a harmonic convergence, and then she said that it, you know, it came and passed with little effect, and they kind of laughed at that, like, well, duh, you know, like, of course it didn't do anything. So you get the idea that even though uh, Benjamin and and Aaron, uh, the hosts of Mysterious Universe, even though they talk about this stuff a lot and they're very familiar with all this stuff, they still have a huge degree of skepticism towards the other people who also appreciate these subjects, which is a little, I don't know, it's off-putting in a a way, but I don't know, not not, uh, my intention to comment on them. But yeah, the manufactured synchronicity, you know, this this idea that they're being like led around to make this movie and then never happens. And then Castaneda passes away. 
And, you know, it's like, to me, my thought is maybe there is something mystical that wanted that energy to be, you know, that was what I first initially thought listening to this podcast. Like, oh, something's calling this guy to make a movie about Castaneda's books, of course, you know. So let me stop right there and see what you think, Mike. All right. All right. You did a really nice job laying that out. So um, the first thing I want to comment on is uh, is your observation of kind of how they like um, how they set how the hosts of the podcast set up the 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 narrative and their own kind of like chopping down of some of its validity, specifically as you were talking about the harmonic convergence. I don't know what happened to the harmonic. I know what the, the harmonic convergence was, but like, you know, I can't say one, one way or the other, you know, what happened or did not happen there on like a, on a grander level. But when you introduce this idea of, of like them as a myth buster, and again, I'm, I'm going to say this, not necessarily saying like this is the case, but this is what pops in my mind, is in the entire realm of, of controlled thought, um, you know, people fall in different parts of, of the paradigm. And a big part of, of the controlled thought, um, the controlled thought uh, uh, operation is that you hit people at each place on that continuum. So the person who's going to listen to this, to this podcast is going to obviously be interested in esoteric or paranormal ideas, but they also want to be rationally reassured that there's nothing, there's nothing to see here, folks, or if there's anything to see here, folks, it's all just a bunch of, of malicious trickster um, pranksters from different dimensions. Like well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm like, because one thing that they did mention, I I wonder if you caught this, and I hope people caught this, um, is the, the part about the stamp of cloth that was given back to Fellini. And then he looks at the stamp of cloth and he's like, that looks just like the lining of my hat. Takes his hat off his head and that exact piece of cloth was punched out of his hat. So it's almost like there was a, an element of, you know, clear, like that doesn't add up from that Mythbuster perspective. So they almost like they take that for at face value and then kind of shrug it off and continue. Because I don't want to give, let the cat out of the bag just yet, but I did uh, buy a subscription to their Plus show just to find out uh, that cliffhanger that they left us with. At the end of the episode. So, okay, so so now I did not. So I'm curious to hear what you what 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 um what what was revealed in there. But you are absolutely right. Like, and that's why I made kind of like the the point in the beginning, saying like this is not a, a Hollywood story because when they were telling when they were telling the story of what the book is about, I was like that didn't happen. Like, you know, that's like, that's like, you know, that's magical realism. That's like, you know, field of dreams type of movie making. Like, you know, like, uh, uh, but like, but it is positioned in the book. Like it was that level of synchronicity. So it's like, like, okay, you know, what exactly is happening? And so the, the, the takeaway, and I think it is an interesting takeaway. I think it's a very, very interesting takeaway, particularly in light of what we're talking about with like, you know, there being a, uh, um, 
you know, a, a natural internet or an earth with ley lines is the fact that just because we see, uh, <laughs> you know, something which is seemingly controlled from outside of the material realm, like that in itself does not universally make it trustworthy, I suppose, in the same way, like, just because you see something on the, uh, you know, the official sanctioned news, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that that it's true. It just means, like, you know, and that whole sort of fallacy of authority and so in this in this instance the fallacy the authority figures would be anyone that exists outside of of our uh, of our experiential reality three-dimensional reality like they're all like you know we, we we should listen to them like you know we should still have some critical um you know, some critical thoughts and particularly, and I thought they, they brought a, the, the whole point of the whole story, which I almost felt was like a bit of a dud, was like this voice, you know, it seems seemingly out of the movie, which they keep on hearing from from uh, their phone, uh, is just kind of sending them on a wild goose chase. And so the truth of it mm. being particularly as we explore with greater um and giving it greater weight, you know, uh, new ways of interacting with with reality. That um, we should have our own our own mechanisms in terms of like uh, uh, recognizing what we should listen to and what we shouldn't, or how or how much significance we place to it. Like you know, and I think that's a really valid point to bring up. And what they said, which I think makes a lot of sense, is like if it appears to be a um, you know a wild goose chase, like if you're get if you're following all the signs, but like nothing's ever happening, and your life is kind of like this is going to be tricky to say. Um, if your life is starting to fall apart, well then um, maybe maybe that's something you should think twice about. But then the and this is why I said it's going to be tricky to say. Um, on the flip side, on the flip side. Part of what we are experiencing right now globally is to see all of the stability of our lives, um, you know, that's being taken down. And our stability has been built upon something that's false. That was the whole idea of, like, your life being, like, completely based upon apps and online banking and shit like that. Um, That does need to happen. Like, if you don't get off it at some point, you will go where it takes you. And so there is a flip side that says, like, if your life is falling apart, maybe maybe it's the places where it needs to be. And so this is, this is where I, I think this is such a thoughtful um, discussion that we're having right now because it's not like, an, like a yes, no, easy answer. Like, uh, it, it requires some real pondering and self-examination, both within one's own, within one's own life, like their life experience independent of, of the, the collective reality, and then also how it uh, intersects with the collective reality. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean it's hard to follow not only hard to say but yeah i i think no and it it kind of brings to mind like everything i've been doing with this like following the synchronicities becoming almost like uh, a synchro knot you know like someone who journeys with the synchronicity or into the synchronicity 
and you see you hear a story like this and you're like well you know are some synchronicities manufactured you know like are they pulling people uh towards a certain aim that is for the desire of like a larger consciousness that we're not aware of you know maybe that consciousness is is smaller like an elemental or something now we're getting into you know categorizing what these things are i mean how could we really tell but i would say you know it did get bring up the sense of like well could the could this be like some kind of spirit talking to them through the phone but um yeah so so we're going to go back to the to the spirit thing in a moment but um what i do want to say now is um is uh, oh wow, wow! I just lost. It was a great idea too. What were what, what what was it that you just said? You said the uh, um, about the, the manufactured oh, like lost, the, the So so one of the things which which the hosts pointed out um, was how it brought out a lot of like negative emotion, jealousy, and like uh, uh, like distrust and anger and all this sort of stuff. And if you go back and you look at who these particularly, particularly um, uh, Fellini and and the actress, uh, they were both, Christina, they were both heavily, heavily vested within our cultural value system. Like, you know, they're celebrities. They were like, you know, they they lived like the, the good life. That's probably... Uh, uh, Fellini's best known work is La Dolce Vida um, and so so part of what what the, the authors or what the hosts were indicating were um, were that there is their thought was you know maybe there's something on the astral plane if you will that uh, when we when we are filled with a certain degree of creativity openness and negative emotion we shut we shine very brightly and like that will attract uh you know astral sort of tricksters if you will um so what i would suggest particularly to the point you just brought up about you know trusting synchronicity and things like that you know if there's any sort of validity to that that argument the host brought up, and I think that, you know, at least logically it makes sense, is that um, when you're not kind of in that that darker... ...is the Heyoka, the trickster, you know, mm-hmm. and how we can mm-hmm. be... And I think... You know, you might have been on the Union of the Unwanted. Uh, I heard when you were talking about right, it. Right, right. So for those who don't know, Mike and I were both on the Union of the Unwanted this past Monday. Please go check that out. Union of the Unwanted, great podcast. But side note, that whole episode is about spirituality. And this idea of the Heoka, the sacred clown, you know, the trickster, and its necessity to sort of reveal you know the higher truths it's like the whole idea of the apocalypse impersonated in a sense you know the the truer meaning of the apocalypse so so that's like that's partly where i think we're going to navigate with this podcast is exploring that theme maybe a little deeper but it's just you know it's very interesting to me that 
there can be this sort of uh, interplay. And, yeah, I think the, the, the host did sort of have this expectation that it was nefarious, but I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think what it is is something like a Hollywood movie, you know, isn't, you know, honoring or maybe treating something like that with the sacred uh, approach or respect it deserves. So, you know, nothing like that is ever going to be made because it doesn't have pure intentions. You know, it's, it's about going back to the real, going back to what is natural. That's when we find a relationship with this higher force, this sacred energy that Don Juan teaches Carlos Castaneda about through his book. Now, you know, maybe this is the right time to let the cat out of the bag. And I do encourage, let the cat out of the bag. Let, I do encourage people to subscribe to mysterious universe. I don't want to go and like, you know, let, you know, men in black who she finds out were allegedly associated with Carlos Castaneda's cult. And they tell her, you know, oh, she's, you're the chosen one. You need to, you know, be the new leader of the cult with, um, you know, I think it was Castaneda, but it might be after Castaneda died and Federico Fellini and Christina were supposed to take over the cult. But that's how they ended it. They were like, oh, see, it was just Carlos Castaneda and his meddling cult, you know. So I felt a little bit like, oh, man, that's how it ended. You know, I was expecting something a little more interesting than that. But, yeah, I mean, that was the that was the letdown for me, too, as somebody who was a fan of his work, you know, and then finding out after looking into him a little further, like, it seems like he didn't have a great uh, end to his life. You know, it seems like some strange things happened to Carlos Castaneda and it, it's not really clear either, you know, and I think that's evident of maybe somebody getting too close to the sun, so to speak. Like you, you get too close to the truth and you know, the forces that be co-opt you, you know, and, and cults are kind of like an ARG, a very extreme version of that, you know, where somebody, comes in and, and programs your reality, you know, over a process of a, a short amount of time and it completely changes your life for the worse. Right. And, you know, to bring up ARGs again, I think that's kind of like what happened to Federico Fellini and Christina in a way, like they got put into this game that was being, you know, directed by this force, this uh, you figure that kept calling them on the phone, you know, through the artificial net network, the matrix of information. So what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> so so first off, is you 100 percent right about Castaneda? He's uh, um, I find his works fascinating and I've spent my time uh, with them. Um, but then like when, just as you said, when we delve into him, both in terms of him being a, uh, 
everything from being a fraud. So one 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 story is about Cash Knight is like you know he made up the whole shit that there's no such thing as a. Uh, um, as Don Juan and, and he made up the entire story, but maybe like mixed in like, you know, his own experience of like Toltec teachings. There's that, uh, there's, there's good evidence about him being like a CIA operative, either a knowing one or an unknowing one, uh, AKA a useful idiot. Um, but then what is also very clear is, um, yeah, his his life got. He did not seem to live uh, a happy life, um, and so and that that seems to be a, a theme in um, a lot of very very uh, um, strong esoteric personalities. Like you think of Aleister Crowley, you think of you know that that there who also had like, his time in Mexico. Strangely enough. They, Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, at the very least, at the very least, I think, it, it, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of arrows that all point to Mexico or Central America or Mesoamerica uh, and some of the um, the previous cultures there is, is containing like access points to um, another type of reality. Uh, so it's that that is that is something which at least I'm aware of on in my life path is like recognizing these sort of um, at least stories which were told. And, and then secondly, though, like to counter that, that thought is going back to what I said a little bit earlier is if you truly are going to get in alignment with, with higher truth, um, and you're still trying to live within a reality which is based upon a, a false reality, in fact, almost like a, an inversion value system to higher truth, um, it's going to break it down. You know, so it's like, oh, okay, I found all these higher truths, but I'm still maybe trying to live, uh, you know, the grand life on the material level, and that those two different, those two things cannot exist, and something's going to break down. And so, a lot of times, that would be like the life of living within, in, uh, in this. This reality, and you know the 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 other side, or or where the opposite side of that coin of what I just suggested would be like, well, look at like anyone who follows an aesthetic. I think that's how I pronounce it. Uh, pronounce it the uh, like you know someone who, regardless of what their their religious uh, affiliation or philosophy may be, but they reject everything within the our culture to live like a very very simple life uh those people don't can't lose anything like they've walked away from it so like those are kind of like the different sort of points uh viewpoints which i look at this whole sort of um this conversation which we're having right now mm. but what i wanted to do was then tie in um my own experiences relative to kind of this storyline, which I'm still suspect. Like, I mean, like, just because she says it's nonfiction doesn't mean she didn't make up the whole shit. Uh, or, or some part, like, you know, there, there's always that because it does seem a little bit, um, I don't, like, at least I'm going to be open to that as a possibility. But, but as I was listening to the podcast, 
I could not help but reflect upon a, a pretty recent event or series of events which has been happening in my life. Right. And something Want me to I, go I, on? Yeah, I, I've heard a little bit about it. And I think people who have heard you on the Higher Side Chats may know part of the story, too, because you have talked about it there. But go ahead. Yeah, I talk about this quite uh, a lot. And the reason I talk about it is because it's, you know, at least uh, when it shows up in my life, it has been, um, you know, a, a pretty a pretty bold uh, flash in the sky, for, uh, which you can't really miss. So you need to talk about it. So um, the long and the short of it is I began receiving letter packages in the mail. I received two packages in the mail from um, someone. And the first, the first package had a poem written about me, uh, really, really like well done. And it had, was filled with like Masonic imagery and there was a silver coin. And then a couple months later, I got a bird cage and a glass bead. And I'm pretty certain, I would say with 85% certainty, I, I have met this person. I know who's sending this to me. Um, so like on that level, like there's not like a mystery, like who's on the other end? Like I'm pretty certain I know who is on the other end. But that being said, that being said, um, to add to there, there are multiple levels of this of this story I need to set up. Uh, you know, I do another show with Emily Moyer, and uh, we do a weekly show together, me and Emily do. And then me, Emily, and Howdy Mikowski do a monthly show together. And Emily and Howdy began receiving packages from the same person. And, you know, we, we were – what, what this person is doing is they're on one hand, you know, they're, they're creating an air of mystery. Like how did this package show up? How did you get my address and that sort of stuff? But it's really not that difficult. Like if you like look at all of the events in our lives that led up to the, um, to the receiving of the packages, it was, it, it wasn't that hard to get, the addresses and the steps, if you pay attention, which this person used, like they become evident. And so one of the questions I ask myself, and you understand why, like, you know, rather than just writing it off and just saying, oh, this is just like, you know, like some, like either like an obsessive fan or, or, or just someone playing who wants to get in on the action and play a game, um, you know, whether there, there's some elements which are more than just that. So the packages that each one of us received were immensely personal. And what they were personal to is just topics which we have discussed on air. So anyone who pays a lot of attention to any of our shows and if they were taking notes, like, you know, they could create something which is very, like, uh, like uh, impeccably well done. Like, each of us received these packages, like, a professional, like, the, the – the most detail-oriented wrap job, everything like the paper and the, the thoughtfulness of the gifts and the quality of the gifts, you know, the gifts were probably ranged like anywhere from like 25 to maybe uh, $150. Like there was a lot of thought and effort that was all put together. Um, and so you've got that element. And then where it gets interesting though is – all of the packages were received 
like the timing of the reception when they came in, when they came into my life, when they came into Emily's life. And I don't know, I can't speak so much for Howdy. He's a little bit, um, uh, he keeps his, his private life a little bit closer to the vet. So I can't, I can't say this with a hundred percent certainty for Howdy, but I can say it with a hundred percent certainty about me and Emily was the timing of the packages was absolutely uh, dovetailed perfectly with events that were happening in our private lives that this person should have absolutely no insight into. And so this is where it starts to get like really like synchronistic or coincidental or like what the hell, you know, what, what is going on? And some of them were, 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 to the point where you couldn't say like, well, maybe your house is bugged and they're listening to that, like other things, like the other people who are disconnected who would say something like it would, it would have to be a, um, a management system if this was like orchestrated or seen that was multiple levels above, not just my life, but other people's lives as well. Like it was really, really strange um, in which, in which, um, in which these packages were received. And then the other thing which is paralleled, which is paralleled to the story which we heard on the podcast and what the book was about was that this entity or whatever we want to call it, which they called you, labeled each person by a color. Each person had a color. And this idea of identifying people by color is, is we've, we've seen a lot in popular culture and what's popping in my head right now like you know the first thing which i'm thinking about is in the movie reservoir dogs you know yes. where all quentin tarantino films are are really really like um deep with like uh cultural programming but all of the characters were just known by colors like you know that would be an example in popular culture in terms of like colors well me howdy and emily we each received a glass bead and that fits into uh um the show which Emily and I do. It's called Playing the Glass Speed Game. But they were all very color-oriented. And so at first, when I received it, I didn't think that much of the colors of each of our beads. But in the context of the model, which was illustrated in this book um, about Fellini and Catherine and, and Castaneda, they also had this like color notification for each person. And so... Um, let, let me go in a couple, I'm, I want to go like three levels. I'm going to finish this level right now and then I'm going to add something else and then I want to hear your thoughts on it. So, so all of that happened. Like, so I'm watching that. I didn't have a kid. Uh, I'm no, listening to the podcast and this really strange interaction with this person who I think I know who they are and they, they're, what they do in material reality is at best a little bit suspect. Um, I'm like, wow, this is weird. I don't know where I'm going to go with this, but this, this, I, I have a, a parallel to this story in my own private life. So that happened on, uh, I guess it was probably like Thursday of last week was when I listened to the podcast. And so that was completely, um, that's when I started thinking about all of these things. Like, they're like, oh, wow, look at this reflection with these weird packages I get. You know, is there any similarity? Why did Mark, like, bring up this podcast of all these podcasts? Like, these are the questions I'm holding in my head. So that being said, you know, I have a regular life. Like, you know, I've got a family. I, like, you know, I live with other people. And within my household, there are also uh, uh, two young girls, you know, uh, ages 8 and 10. 
And that evening, we had decided to watch the first part of a movie. And this movie was, um, you know, it was chosen for the girls in like an age-appropriate movie. And that movie is called Nanny McPhee. Have you ever heard of this movie called Nanny McPhee? Well, only only because I have many uh, female cousins and a sister, so but I've never seen it. But yeah, I think my right. Like probably... I've never seen it. <laughs> like and I, in fact, like it was like just on the 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 outskirts of my memory of pop culture. I'm like, this kind of sounds familiar. I think I know. I, I I know what it is, and my brain works that way. Like I know a lot about pop culture, which which I don't know the details. I just know it exists. So I'm like, all right, uh, I'll sit down, and I always enjoy like that. Uh, I enjoy that experience, like watching the movie uh, with the family for a variety of reasons. Like you know, some just like you know because family time is very enriching. But then also, I'm like, all right, well, am I going to learn? And I particularly like watching some. Thing I would never choose myself. So I'm like, okay, let me go watch. And keep in mind, this is the day, the exact day in which I listened to that podcast. Well, this whole fucking show movie, Nanny McPhee, is all about like it's it has a lot of friggin' similarities to this story which you had told me, uh, or which we listened to this podcast. So let me walk you through like what Nanny McPhee's about. Nanny McPhee is um, uh, there's this uh, this widower, this man who's got like I don't know like seven kids, and his wife dies, and uh, seventeen nannies uh, come through, and the kids get rid of the seventeen nannies because they're so um, they're so horrible to the nanny, and then this Nanny McPhee comes, and then she like you know uh, um, she she like changes the family. And she's very, very kind of like there's this mystical element. She just appears, and she be- and and how it begins is the the widower, the man, the husband or the father. He starts hearing this voice. He doesn't hear it over the phone, but it's very, very similar. That like wherever he turns around, he hears this strange voice that tells him Nanny McPhee is is who you need to find. Nanny McPhee. This is exactly the same thing which the voice, the same modus operandi in which these voices are calling Fellini and Catherine and saying, you're going to need a director. There's this person. So it's the same idea of this mysterious voice coming and they're like really confused. And then a person shows up who meets it. So within within this this Nanny McPhee and like you know it's he goes through like a like it's a feel good movie like you know it's a, it's 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 exceptionally well done for what it is for like you know this type of like children's film and I'll, I'm going to get into that for a moment but if you're paying friggin' attention to the details of this movie. And this is why I said we're going to go back to you mentioned like they thought that the that it may be a spirit on the other voice. The entire movie, um, Nanny McPhee, is about communication with the dead. It's about communication with the dead. And why do I say that? <laughs> what? <laughs> so, so what happens is you find out like uh, one at the end of the movie that Nanny McPhee kind of implies that it was the dead wife, the dead mother that brought Ma- Nanny McPhee there. Uh, so you that that's like alluded to. It's alluded mm. to by the Nanny McPhee character is is talking to an empty chair, which is where the wife 
uh, sat and and she was talking to her as if she were there and she was like, I, I you know, I did what you asked me to or, or something along those lines. But then we go and we step back a little bit further. What was the, the occupation of the father of the husband? Well, he was a mortician. So they're telling us that this guy is already like deeply connected with the dead. And then when you go, uh, the the highlight of the film was um, the highlight of the film was uh, um, or the or the climax was a wedding which takes place. Finally, the 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 father meets like a, a, a wonderful replacement, a, an approved place, replacement by the dead mother, and they get married. And it was in the middle of August when this wedding takes place, but then this mystical uh, snowstorm blows up and then everyone's covered in snow, but it's done like they're not freezing or anything. And it's like uh, visually, it's very, very like, you know, uh, 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 whimsical and appealing and beautiful, but I'm watching it and I'm like, this is, I'm already, I already figured out it's all about the death about the dead because I'm like, why else is this guy a mortician? I'm really looking for like all of this dead sort of stuff. And then I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is the same flavor as a Tim Burton film. Like the way, like uh, you, they, the, the, the scene director or the, the scene creator uh, made what this wedding looked like. And with the snow, it looks just like something out of like, you know, the, the nightmare before Christmas or any of like Tim Burton's films, which are always about death and the other side and these sort of things. So, so we see that again. And then also when you see at the very end of the movie, uh, Nanny McPhee, the way they show, like they kind of like morphs into animation and they show the silhouette of this Nanny McPhee and she, they show her like, like uh, uh, with, with horns, like kind of like de- like it looks like a devil, like there's an implication, whether it's like the devil itself, himself or herself, or whether it's just more like a, a trickster God, if you want to go and look at it that way, because that's certainly a, uh, uh, one way of understanding what, what Satan represents. But this is all of the symbology. Um, I'm going to go one more level because I know I'm giving you a lot, and then I'm going to stop, and I want to hear, like, all of your different thoughts. So this is where it gets even more interesting. So Nanny McPhee was a movie, and it was really, really well done. The the caliber of actors that were involved were were very high-level, like uh, – uh, I guess you call them um, grade A or, or A-listed celebrities. So Emma Thompson, the Academy Award-winning actress, was the main character. Colin Firth was in it. Angela Lansbury was in it. Side note, Angela Lansbury is very significant because you need to see her in the film called Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. And it's all about like uh, satanic uh, witchery. Like it's, that's another conversation, but she has that connection and she plays a key role within the film. But nonetheless, I'm watching it. I'm like, I know these char- I know these actors have done films together before. And uh, I, I remembered what movie which they did a film together, uh, all of these actors before. And sure enough, the same people who made this movie I'm about to mention are the same people who made uh, Nanny McPhee. And so it just... It's it just stands to reason, like you know, from a very logical. This is how the world works. Perspective is like, oh, these people work together, the directors and like the producers, and so like they, they all they all know how each other work, and there's good chemistry, and so let's do that again. So you could look at it that level, but we're going to go a little bit deeper. The film which 
they all did together before, and it came out, I want to say, about like five years before Nanny McPhee in the early 2000s, was a film called Love Actually. Are you familiar with Love Actually? No. All right. So Love Actually was a film that came out um, in uh, 2003, I would imagine. It was like a Christmas feel-good movie. It came out of the U.K., and a, uh, a general rule of thumb, which I use by understanding popular culture, which comes out of the um, out of the UK, when it's done exceptionally well and it's exceptionally well received, you can bet that it is a Tavistock Institute project, and it's part of mass mind control. They are the top of the pyramid, and I would say this film, Love Actually, like as soon as. Uh, I saw it before I became aware of like Tavistock and how the world worked, but I, you know, I went back in time and I saw the film again and I was able to say like, this is fucking Tavistock work altogether. So love actually is, um, uh, and <laughs> it, it begins where they're talking about, um, you know, when the towers fell on September 11th, you know, we thought there was no love in the world, but we are actually finding out it's all love actually all along. And then they, they interweave like five or six different storylines in this beautiful way. And like, you know, everyone leaves feeling great about the world. You know, this is what they needed to go and introduce in the early 2000s. So this is where it gets friggin' weird. So I know I, and I'm not going to spend that much time going into much more detail about why I know that love actually is part of the, like, you know, large, uh, global programming industry. Um, but I know that I, I, I've reached that conclusion, at least, you know, I am satisfied within myself saying like, this is a fair conclusion to reach. So what is so fucking weird about Nanny McFig is that not only did they use, they didn't use all of the actors from Love Actually, but they used a bunch of them and they have the actors in the same friggin' archetypical relationship. And so let me give you, uh, let, let, let me give you like the, the most glaring example and then, and then I'll stop. So within the family of, um, within the family of Nanny McPhee, there was an oldest child who was kind of like the ringleader of all of the children, uh, as they would act out against the nannies. And like, he was, he was, event, he was, at first he was the, the 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 biggest obstacle to Nanny McPhee doing what she needed to do to save this family, but then eventually he came around, and so this is a little boy whose mother had died, and you know he's 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 working with but everything which which a, a child would go through in that experience. Um, that was his role in Love Actually. His role in Love Actually was his mother just died, and who the actress who played Nanny McPhee. Uh, Emma Thompson in Love Actually was the the sister of of the father of the boy. Um, like that was replicated exactly. The 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 husband the husband in um, in Nanny McPhee. 
fee, who then he eventually married his housekeeper. The exact same actor did the exact same thing in Love Actually, uh, marrying or falling in love or proposing with a ho his housekeeper, who was a different actress but looks exactly the same. And so the point I'm trying to make with all this, and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this all together, is like there, there is a, to my eyes, there in in the the three things I just told you, both like the packages which I had been receiving and Emily had been receiving and how he had been receiving from this character, and then the timing of listening to that podcast and then watching the same movie being put, same concept being played out on a movie totally randomly, and then seeing that this movie is completely tied into the instrumentation of behind-the-scenes mind control. It's like, <laughs> how, that's exactly what the podcast was about. It's like this intermingling between like actual synchronicity and controlled synchronicity and all of these different sort of things. So I don't exactly have like a final point or conclusion that based upon these three things, I'm now going to go and do this, but I am recognizing, I'm recognizing a, a, a real time parallel uh, which is giving me, I guess, at least reason to thought for thinking in a new way between like the conversations you and I are having and then what's unfolding in my actual life. Wow. Well, perfect timing. The loud, noisy furnace that's down here just shut off a moment before you started talking or before you stopped talking. Um, yeah. Wow, Mike. I think the... Uh, <clears throat> I think the connections there are actually exactly what, you know, is the fun of being a part of this whole synchronistic, like noticing that it's like, oh, okay. It's the magic of awareness, which is something that, you know, to bring up the first book I mentioned, uh, Victor Sanchez. I mean, the whole series of the Carlos Castaneda books Don Juan is constantly getting Carlos Castaneda to sort of shift his awareness and stop his ego from preventing his awareness from like sinking into this Nagual, the, uh, you know, the, the real reality that's all around us that we're never really conscious of with our traditional common senses. But, yeah, it's just, and that, but where I transition that is like what you mentioned about Castaneda being connected to the CIA. I mean, his whole book really was a lot to do with why I maybe tried psychedelics, you know, like his book definitely brought those uh, plants to my life with a little better reputation than all the other sources I had heard it from. You know, so now I have this series of books that are really cool and fascinating. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd love to try that stuff, you know. So to that extent, you know, knowing what I know now about the music industry and how they were pushing drugs on people, I mean, yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't put it past Castaneda to be a CIA agent because I think his book definitely, you know, discusses these things in a way that is not the right approach, so to speak. Like just reading that book isn't enough to be prepared to then go on a spirit journey. I think, you know, you, you actually should go to 
a tribe and get peyote yourself, you know, from a rite of passage, the mm-hmm. right way that they've structured rather than just like, oh, I read this book. Now I'm going to go find this on the street and, and trip out for a couple of days. Not that that's what I did, but it's definitely, you know, an influence on my life looking back. So I don't, I don't doubt that there was, you know, a sort of manufactured nature to me finding those substances and then taking them. But, you know, I don't think I'm worse off for taking mushrooms because now here I am, you know, understanding certain things that maybe I wouldn't have without that experience. So it's tough. It's, it's the, it's the, the reason why I think this is the revealing too, because we're, we're understanding the forces that are at play better than ever. Can, Can I respond to what you said? Because you said some really interesting things. Please. So, um, like the the entire the entire counterculture movement, and particularly its correlation with psychedelics, is has been very very well documented to have been a a CIA uh, CIA operation. And you know you could then go like, well, why is the CIA doing it? Who's driving that? That's another question. But we we can say that we we know that from like all of the work. Um, Dave McGowan has done, like, that's a really good thing. But then also the beginning of it, the beginning of, of psychedelics, introducing the idea of psychedelics into the, the, the adolescent collective, collective consciousness, it came from a Time Life article. A Time Life article, uh, like, in the 1950s, uh, Jan Irvin does an amazing job, like, when he explains that history and, like, how Time Life is connected to, like, skull and bones and all this sort of stuff. So that was always kind of, like, um, that was this, this idea of unleashing, uh, psychedelics into an out the, the mainstream American adolescent mind has always been there. And it's, and there's a lot of strong argument as to this is the reason why, like, as much, you know, the more they sell you is like, uh, um, psychedelics is entheogens. You know that's a CIA word. Like the idea that like a, that they're calling a psychedelic like something that connects you closer to God. Like that was a sales job. Like so uh, so it has been used as a um, uh, a counter reason to say like all right this CIA this dark stuff I ain't gonna do this because part of like the the negative um, the negative uh, or destructive conclusion of introducing these very, very powerful um, reality-busting mechanisms to an unprepared, a not, an unmatured uh, psyche is that it gets you fucked up for life, potentially. But this is the line that, this is the, this is the line. You described it yourself. You said, I wish, you know, the ideal way would be to go and and sit with and experience culture and people through the use of these, of these instruments, because these instruments can very well break down false reality. It's not the only way, but they can do that. But you do need to have like, uh, um, you do need to ha- have it in a controlled, well done environment, uh, environment. Like, you know, the people who are leading you and then guiding you before and after, because there is a, there, it's a crapshoot. What's going to happen. And, <laughs> but, uh, so that was part of it. So I'm going to step back and I'm going to say like, yeah, this, the, 
that what is happening, this revealing which is happening is uh, if it's going to be managed, like this is one of the ways you're going to be managed. All right, people are going to be waking the fuck up. This is how I get ahead of it. I'm going to go and create the scenario. And maybe like 15% of the people who go into it, they're going to go down a path and they're going to be kind of like lost for, you know, we could write them off. But for those who are able to go through that, and so, uh, and th- and I would say this is also the the truth with the Castaneda books is like, uh, on one level that could like really like screw up someone, but then on the other level, if you're not screwed up, there's a lot of friggin' treasure there. There's a lot of treasure, and what you're describing, the way you're describing your process, and particularly like looking at where you are now in life and what you're doing, and particularly how it's one successful, but two, like not part of the mainstream is like, this is kind of like what it looks like if you go through it, you know, you through your own discipline, you through your own chance meetings with other like uh, teachers in your life. Like I'm thinking mostly about the guy who you met at Yale University. Like this is, this is the other way. Like it's like uh, they brought you to this, this scenario and Unlike the friend that you mentioned to us last week who was just like, you know, maybe not utilizing these instruments of reality, uh, of reality destruction in a way that serves him or in a way which he grows just as like kind of like a cool ass experience. Like you didn't do that path. You did another path and this is where we find you. And so this is kind of how I see the role, this, this really kind of like contradictory relationship between the the controlled counterculture movement done by intelligence agencies and then the actual uh, um, uh, life-expanding um, perspective experiences that can come through these through these natural tools, you know, the, these these mushrooms or cactus or so forth. Like that's how I see it. I agree. Yeah, I think I think the. Uh the nature of, of life unfolding, you know, it's for you to decide, you know, obviously what decisions you're going to make. And when these influences come to the forefront, I think it really just takes your heart's discernment to be the judge. You know, that's why I kind of pointed out like, well, their movie never got made. And maybe the idea of making a movie about this thing wasn't a good intention any anyways i mean you look at a lot of the movies that you analyze there's always an intention behind them and uplifting consciousness tends to be maybe 15 percent of the time i don't know maybe from my perspective 85 percent of the time they're planning some sort of deception or some sort of reality shift that they want to, you know, in a sociological experiment type of way, uh, play out, you know, this theater of the mind. They give people characters. Those are archetypes. They then live their life through those archetypes. I wonder if the Carlos Castaneda series as a movie, you know, would have worked against, the ever-present they, not to get too paranoid, but their plot against us to sort of diminish that connection between us and a higher reality or a higher self, the real. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, on the point of Nanny McPhee, 
it doesn't surprise me that there are those connections. Um, and it, it does, it kind of sounds like, uh, the same thing, like this spiritualism, uh, that swept the 19th century America, you know, another episode I was listening to not to bring mysterious universe back. This is not going to become a mysterious universe, uh, commentary podcast, but, they were talking about this group of kids who started, you know, doing seances and got in touch with this Dr. Bindeloff. And this Dr. Bindeloff would, you know, do these seances with these kids and, and give them instructions on how to build these devices that then they would use to better communicate with Dr. Bindeloff. And then these like, so when they got a little more, you know, into, <laughs> into uh, the seances, you know, some things started happening. Then Dr. Bindeloff left and some darker forces started communicating with them. And then, you know, they all just kind of grew up and gave up the seances. And then, he, you know, the, one of the kids that was involved in these seances meeting Dr. Bindeloff, he goes to this medium and, and she says, you know, well, this is you, you're Dr. Bindeloff. You've become this person, you know, like that was you from the future sort of <laughs> communicating with yourself. So that, that to me seems like the, you know, it's a mix between the spirit of the land and our higher self and the mix between the two, you know, like mm -hmm. in Carlos Castaneda's place, it's in his for his instance, it's it's very much the land and the personality of Don Juan that portray this sort of like universal wisdom. You can find this in all different corners of mm -hmm. the world, shamanism, you know, different forms of it. Uh, and it's all talking about the same thing, you know, it's getting to this actual reality and... <laughs> with this cultural overlay that we're all born into this false reality that we're all born into something like shamanism seems really appealing. Cause it's like, Oh wow, that that's like what we're really supposed to be living through. And then you have all these like dead end paths towards it, right. That they've set up. It seems like, um, with the, music festivals and the hyper sexualization and the hyper uh, dopamine drugs that they put out there, you know, all mm -hmm. trying to decentivize the more, you know, natural versions. Like you said, cactus, mushroom, fungi, you know, these are the, these are the actual plant teachers, the, the pure versions of which just like we kind of got to the beginning, you know, how they've alchemized and concentrated things to their, almost most potent, but in the same way, least natural place, you know, like we shouldn't, we shouldn't, uh, you know, demonize that plant. It's the, the form that that plant has taken through the man, man's process of it, you know, turning it into the powder that makes it addictive, makes it deadly, you know, really close friend of mine just lost his younger brother to cocaine, you know, so synchronistically that, uh, came up for me this week, you know, thoughts and prayers to him and, and his family. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, <laughs> that when, when you're faced with that side of it, you know, the whole substance family can get the bad rap. It's like, people are like, Oh, it's all the same. Don't use any of it. Look what happened to this guy. He died. But you know, 
I think my larger point is that you being <laughs> yourself, not the guy on the phone manipulating Fe Frederico and Christina, but you listening, uh, you are the judge, you know, getting in touch with your heart. You know, that's kind of what my life has shown me so far. I mean, would you say that's true for you, Mike? Like your heart being the the compass that once you figure out your heart's compass, then you can start to navigate things and discern things in a truer way? All right. That's a big question. <laughs> uh, uh, let, let me ask you this. And, and I, I think this would be a kind of like a nice way to, to begin to, to wrap up our conversation. So what do you mean by, by the heart? And I'm not like challenging you. I'm like, I want clarification so right. I can answer accordingly. That's a good question because I think I do use that term and it is subjective. So to me, and, and that's fine. Like right. it's totally fine to right. use subjective terms, but we need to define. So I know what your subjectivity is so I can put yes. it in context. Yes. So for me, I would say my heart is a sort of, Lay, not layer, but mode of thinking, I mean, to, to logically analyze it, but it really, it's a feeling associated with a, a, a phase of consciousness where the thoughts I'm having in that moment are directly in correspondence with my emotions in a way that feels extremely sad, like not satisfying, but like the word truth kind of sounds cliche here, but just knowing a sense of knowing. Right. Right. And, and I think confirmation after feeling that once you have experiences that then confirm it for you. And then you're able to sort of, you know, have a better grasp over where your, your compass, so to speak is, is pointing you to in that kind of magnetic way. So really I think it's, it's your sort of, uh, knowing not your, not your ego, not your id, but like maybe that layer in between your consciousness and your higher consciousness. I, I think that's a great way of, of describing what you mean. And, and maybe like, uh, uh, listening to you say that, um, tell me if this is also a correct way of describing it. Um, it's not, uh, the feeling is not that of anxiety or, 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 confusion or conflict like oh it could be this or it could be that there's like you're describing kind of like an integration which you then feel solid with stepping into right right and and yeah. like an awareness that the thoughts you're having about that whatever it is that's in present in your mind uh are true to your uh collective accumulative uh, experience so far Right, right. That it's integrated. Well, you know what you think, what you've experienced. This is right. There's no conflict. So, okay. So if you use that as a definition of like kind of like heart knowing, um, yeah, de uh, uh, my, I think my personal experience is a little bit different than that, but I also think I, you know, I'm, I'm 30. How old are you, Mark? I'll be 27 in 13 days. All right, so I'm 23 years older than you. So it's, all that means is I have 23 more years in this body of, of experiences, of opportunities to fuck shit up. <laughs> so right so with, 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 with that being said, with that being said, like um, within, my, within my experience in my life, um, uh, 
there is um I've I've gotten to where I have gotten. What I mean by that is my understanding of reality. I don't mean that in terms of like status or anything like that. Um, but I've gotten there by just um, looking at things that I find that interest me. Like I'm naturally interested in and completely independent upon. Uh, of like, how can this like benefit me? Oh, I'm going to go learn this because it's a, it's a, it'll be good for my career or like, you know, something like that. Um, and then um, being able to interpret it based upon my, and, and trusting and not needing like the, 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 the validation from something external. And I think that's very similar to kind of like what you're describing. Like I would have described it differently, but it's the same in terms of this like kind of integration and comfort level with with my own my own kind of um, interest decisions and so forth, just based upon how I feel about it. I'm interested in it. This is what I want to go and learn. Um, I will add this though. You know, this is probably a little bit more unique to Mike. Is uh, <laughs> the way I go about a lot of life, um, you know, I, I rarely, rarely do I go the most direct, efficient path. In fact, almost never do I go the most direct path. Uh, I always take the path of least resistance. And that has often led me to places where I'm like, how the fuck did I get here? But then it always brings me to the right place. And so I've learned to trust that. And I would say uh, that couples in very much to my story. Um, and then I'm going to say one last thing about like never how I know that I don't go the, the direct path. Um, I have a great sense of direction. I'm really, really good at giving directions. I love when people ask me for directions. I love like, oh, how am I going to get from this point to that point? Like even in my own town, um, what I have learned, what I have learned through just my own observation is that my instincts to get from point A to point B, um, and particularly in comparison to like, let's say my, my, my ex-wife, she's probably the best example, uh, her instincts to go to a place were always the most direct ways in the way. And the ways I would always think were always the most indirect ways. But, but if there was ever like traffic or if there was a, a, an accident and roads were closed, she was totally friggin' lost, and all of the ways which, which made sense to me were wide open in the ways to work around. <laughs> so one of the things which I've learned about myself, and, and, I, and the reason I'm sharing this detail is, you know, just in terms of, of, of as we're describing how you found your path or how you found, like, your, your navigation system on the path, is it's going to look a little bit different for everyone. And if you study, if you study your, 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 your ways of going about things and you do it with like an open, but then a non-judgmental way, like I'm open. Yeah. Like I choose the fucking in most indirect way to go from point A to Z, even though I think it's the best way to go. Um, I know that about myself, but I also know these are, um, they, ser they serve me in a completely different way. And so I trust that. I trust that I've through experience. And so, uh, you know, maybe this is a, um, uh, at least how I'd like to maybe end up uh, our conversation today is just that idea. I share that as, as an example of what it looks like as someone who can uh, 
analyze their own behaviors with detachment and acceptance. Right on. Yeah, no, I, I'm grinning over here because I feel that, like I've had the same sort of uh, driving disputes with people in my life where I'm like, just, I know how, how to get there. Don't question me, you know, <laughs> but yeah, we, we got a lot of traffic where I live. So been there, yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah. but yeah, I so I, I, I think, yeah, I agree. That is a great place to, to leave off. And, uh, and yeah, I think navigating this podcast, navigating our own lives, something will come up in the next couple of days before our next episode and uh, certainly we, how about th- how about this is there a way if someone's listening to this at home that they could send you like hey why don't you talk about this and th- is there a way that people can do that there is a way uh people can go to podinbox.com slash mftic in capital letters or just click the link in this description and leave us a voice message if they're brave uh, but if they'd rather just write some a nice message, they can go on Instagram, Instagram, uh, follow Susquehanna Alchemy, leave Mike a message, or uh, probably better to leave me a message. I'll probably get to it uh, at my family thinks I'm crazy on Instagram. Uh, but someone has emailed us in the past couple days uh, saying that they love the show. So we've got some some good uh, some good comments and yeah shout out to um travis up in montana and then uh there's one other guy sorry that i'm forgetting uh their name but i'm trying to find them in my uh maddie r shout out to maddie r so people have commented but no messages yet just just people saying they love the show if they want to hear us talk about something, definitely throw it out there. Cool. Right on, Mike. All right. Well, it's been Mark, a pleasure. It was, it was always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. And uh, I look forward to the next one. Right on. Take it easy, Mike. Thank you for listening to another episode of Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. I'm Mystic Mark. And with me today, of course, was Uncle Mike, as usual. You can find more from Michael at Susquehanna Alchemy, SusquehannaAlchemy.com, his YouTube channel. And of course, for those who want to get the full scope of things, go over to his subscribe star and support there. And if you want, support this show too, your handbook for the apocalypse by supporting me, Mark Missing Mark, on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Go to MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com. We're about to hit our 100,000th download pretty soon. So if you are listening on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast feed, thank you so much. We appreciate you. And be sure to subscribe to the Susquehanna Alchemy podcast feed in the episode description so you can get the Your Handbook for the Apocalypse podcast. It's going to come out every week there. Okay, we're going to do it every Thursday. We record on Wednesdays and we're going to talk on Thursdays. And we hope to do something cool like we did last week uh, where we give you guys something to go and listen to or to look at uh, and to look forward to us talking about and breaking down in the next week's episode. And it's really fun. Mike and I do this over the phone, which is a new way 
or an old way, bringing back an old way to do this kind of thing as opposed to using Zoom or another way of doing things. So I think this show in itself is going to be unique and different, and I'm excited. You know, this is only episode three, and so far Mike has loved every episode. I've loved every conversation, and I hope you feel the same way. So stick with us, support us at Susquehanna Alchemy. Search that or just subscribe. I'll put the link in the description. And the other link I'm putting in the, the description is the pod inbox. That's right. Leave us a message and you can be on the show. Podinbox.com slash capital M, capital F, capital T, capital I, capital C. That's right. MFTIC in all capital letters. There's two inboxes there. You can leave one for this show or you can leave one for the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, which again... Thank you for listening. We're about to hit our 100,000th download and our year anniversary is coming up as well. So be in the zone and stay tuned for the newest episode coming out soon. But again, thank you for being here. We love you. Peace out. This has been your handbook for the apocalypse. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.